Part two, chapter fifteen of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part two, Wild England. Chapter fifteen, Sailing Onwards. When Felix awoke, he knew at once by the height of the sun that the morning was far advanced. Throwing off his cloak, he stood up but immediately crouched down again, for a vessel was passing but a short distance from the shore, and nearly opposite his encampment. She had two masts, and from the flags flying, the numerous bannerets, and the movements of so many men on board, he knew her to be a ship of war. He was anxious that he should not be seen, and regretted that his canoe was so much exposed for the bush by which he had landed hid it only from one side. As the shore was so bare and open, if they looked that way, the men on board would hardly fail to see it, and might even distinguish him. But whether they were too much engaged with their own affairs, or kept a careless lookout, no notice appeared to be taken, no boat was lowered. He watched the warship for nearly an hour before he ventured to move. Her course was to the eastward, inside the fringe of islands. That she was neither Irish nor Welsh, he was certain from her build and from her flags. They were too distant for the exact designs upon them to be seen, but near enough for him to know that they were not those displayed by the foreigners. She sailed fast, having the wind nearly aft, which suited her two square sails. The wind had risen high during the night, and now blew almost a gale, so that he saw he must abandon, for the present, his project of sailing out upon the open water. The waves there would be too high for his canoe, which floated low in the water, and had but about six inches freeboard. They would wash over and possibly swamp her. Only two courses were open to him, either to sail inside the islands under shelter of the land, or to remain where he was till the breeze moderated. If he sailed inside the islands, following the northward course of the merchant vessel he had observed the previous evening, that would carry him past Eaststock, the eastern port of Sypolis, which city, itself inland, had two harbours, with the western of which, Weststock, it had communication by water. Should he continue to sail on, he would soon reach that part of the northern continent which was occupied by the Irish outposts. On the other hand, to follow the warship east by south would, he knew, bring him by the great city of Aisi, famous for its commerce, its riches, and the warlike disposition of its king, Isambard. He was the acknowledged head of the forces of the League, but yet, with the inconsistency of the age, sometimes attacked other members of it. His furious energy was always disturbing the world, and Felix had no doubt he was now at war with someone or other, and that the warship he had seen was on its way to assist him or his enemies. One of the possibilities which had impelled him to this voyage was that of taking service with some king or commander, and so perhaps gradually rising himself to command. Such adventures were very common, knights often setting forth upon such expeditions, 
when dissatisfied with their own rulers, and they were usually much welcomed as an addition to the strength of the camp they sought. But there was this difference, that such knights carried with them some substantial recommendation, either numerous retainers, well armed and accustomed to battle, considerable treasure, or at least a reputation for prowess in the field. Felix had nothing to offer, and for nothing, nothing is given. The world does not recognise intrinsic worth or potential genius. Genius must accomplish some solid result before it is applauded and received. The unknown architect may say, I have a design in my mind for an impregnable castle, but the world cannot see or appreciate the mere design. If by any personal sacrifice of time, dignity, or self-respect, the architect, after long years, can persuade someone to permit him to build the castle, to put his design into solid stone, which squadrons may knock their heads against in vain, then he is acknowledged. There is then a tangible result. Felix was in the position of the architect. He believed he had ideas, but he had nothing substantial, no result to point to. He had, therefore, but little hope of success, and his natural hauteur and pride revolted against making application for enrolment, which must be accompanied with much personal humiliation, since at best he could but begin in the common ranks. The very idea of asking was repugnant to him. The thought of Aurora, however, drew him on. The pride was false, he said to himself, and arose from too high an estimate of his abilities, or it was the consequence of living so long entirely secluded from the world. He acknowledged to himself that he had not been beaten down to his level. Full of devotion to Aurora, he resolved to humble himself to seek the humblest service in King Isambard's camp, to bow his spirit to the orders of men above him in rank, but below him in birth and ability, to submit to the numberless indignities of a common soldier's life. He proceeded to launch the canoe, and had already placed the chest on board, when it occurred to him that the difficulties he had encountered the previous evening, when his canoe was so nearly lost, arose from his ignorance of the channels. It would be advisable to ascend the hill, and carefully survey the coast as far as possible, before setting forth. He did so. The warship was still visible from the summit, but while he looked she was hidden by the intervening islands. The white foam and angry appearance of the distant open water direct to the eastward showed how wise he had been not to attempt its exploration. Under the land the wind was steady. Yonder, where the gale struck the surface with all its force, the waves were large and powerful. From this spot he could see nearly the whole length of the strait, and, gazing up it in the direction he had come, he saw some boats crossing in the distance. As they moved so slowly, and appeared so broad, he conjectured that they were flat-bottomed punts, and, straining his eyes, he fancied he detected horses on board. He watched four cross, 
and presently the first punt returned, as if for another freight. He now noticed that there was a land route by which travellers or wagons came down from the northward and crossed the strait by a ferry. It appeared that the ferry was not in the narrowest part of the strait, but nearer its western mouth, where the shores were flat and covered with reeds and flags. He wondered that he had not seen anything of the landing-places, or of the ferry-boats, or some sign of this traffic, when he passed, but concluded that the track was hidden among the dense growth of reed and flag, and that the punts, not being in use that day, had been drawn up, and perhaps covered with green boughs, to shelter them from the heat of the summer sun. The fact of this route existing, however, gave additional importance to the establishment of a fort on the shore of the strait, as he had so long contemplated. By now the first punt had obtained another load, and was recrossing the channel. It was evident that a caravan of travellers or merchants had arrived, such persons usually travelling in large bodies for safety, so that the routes were often deserted for weeks together, and then suddenly covered with people. Routes, indeed, they were, and not roads, mere tracks worn through the forest and over the hills, often impassable from floods. Still further satisfied that his original idea of a castle here was founded on a correct estimate of the value of the spot, Felix resolved to keep the conception to himself, and not again to hazard it to others who might despise him but adopt his design. With one long last glance at the narrow streak of water which formed the central part, as it were, of his many plans, he descended the hill, and pushed off in the canoe. His course this time gave him much less trouble than the day before, when he had frequently to change his tack. The steady, strong breeze came off the land, to which he was too close for any waves to arise and hour after hour passed without any necessity to shift the sail, further than to ease or tighten the sheets, as the course of the land varied. By degrees the wind came more and more across his course, at right angles to it, and then began to fall aft as he described an arc, and the land projected northwards. He saw several small villages on the shore, and passed one narrow bay, which seemed, indeed, to penetrate into the land deeper than he could actually see. Suddenly, after four or five hours sailing, he saw the tower of a church over the wooded hills. This, he knew, must indicate the position of Aisi. The question now came whether he should sail into the harbour, when he would, of course, at once be seen, and have to undergo the examination of the officers or should he land and go on foot to the city? A minute's reflection assured him the latter was the better plan, for his canoe was of so unusual a construction that it would be more than carefully examined, and not unlikely his little treasures would be discovered and appropriated. Without hesitation, therefore, and congratulating himself that there were no vessels in sight, he ran the canoe on shore, among the flags and reeds which bordered it. He drew her up as far as his strength permitted, and not only took down the sail, but unshipped the mast. Then, cutting a quantity of dead reeds, he scattered them over her, 
so that, unless a boat passed very close to the land, she would not be seen. While he had a meal, he considered how he had better proceed. The only arms with which he excelled were the bow and arrow. Clearly, therefore, if he wished an engagement, he should take these with him, and exhibit his skill. But well he knew the utter absence of law and justice, except for the powerful. His bow, which he so greatly valued, and which was so well seasoned, and could be relied upon, might be taken from him. His arrows, so carefully prepared from chosen wood and pointed with steel, might be seized. Both bow and arrows were far superior to those used by the hunters and soldiery, and he dreaded losing them. There was his crossbow, but it was weak, and intended for killing only small game, as birds, and at short range. He could make no display with that. Sword he had none for defence. There remained only his boar-spear, and with this he resolved to be content, trusting to obtain the loan of a bow when the time came to display his skill, and that fortune would enable him to triumph with an inferior weapon. After resting a while and stretching his limbs cramped in the canoe, he set out, carrying his boar-spear only, along the shore, for the thick growth of the firs would not let him penetrate in the direction he had seen the tower. He had to force his way through the reeds and flags and brushwood, which flourished between the firs and the water's edge. It was hard work walking, or rather pushing, through these obstacles, and he rejoiced when he emerged upon the slope of a down where there was an open sward and but a few scattered groups of firs. The fact of it being open and the shortness of the sward showed at once that it was used for grazing purposes for cattle and sheep. Here he could walk freely, and soon reach the top. Thence the city was visible almost underneath him. It stood at the base of a low, narrow promontory, which ran a long way into the lake. The narrow bank, near where it joined the mainland, was penetrated by a channel or creek, about a hundred yards wide or less, which channel appeared to enter the land, and was lost from sight of among the trees. Beyond this channel a river ran into the lake, and in the Y, between the creek and the river, the city had been built. It was surrounded with a brick wall, and there were two large round brick towers on the land side, which indicated the position of the castle and palace. The space enclosed by the walls was not more than half a mile square, and the houses did not occupy nearly all of it. There were open places, gardens, and even small paddocks among them. None of the houses were more than two stories high, but what at once struck a stranger was the fact that they were all roofed with red tiles, most of the houses of that day being thatched or covered with shingles of wood. As Felix afterwards learnt, this had been effected during the reign of the present king, whose object was to protect his city from being set on fire by burning arrows. The encircling wall had become a dull red hue from the long exposure to the weather, but the roofs were a brighter red. There was no ensign flying on either of the towers, from which he concluded that the king at that moment was absent. End of Part 2 Chapter 15